Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I am excited to continue with our discussion of insight meditation and mindfulness. It's one of my favorite subjects, I think, of a lot of the things, just because of the importance of it. So, last week we talked about mindfulness and insight. We talked about mindfulness and insight meditation as often presented to students as different types of practices or different sides of the same practice. And one of the things I mentioned last week was just the challenges we have with talking about insight meditation and how we bring a lot of presumption and a lot of bias and preconceived notions to insight meditation practice which is fine. It's what humans do. It's what we do when we learn anything new, right? We're always bringing our frameworks (laughs) right along with us. Um, So that's nothing new. Uh, But in in the meditation sort of sphere, if you will, some of our presumptions actually come from the fact that many of us begin our practice with mindfulness, mindfulness meditation. And at some point, many of us find we want a deeper experience and we find ourselves asking about some of the other teachings of the Buddha, or just trying to figure out what the Eightfold Path is, or you know, wanting to have you know more tools to deal with strong emotions. So we look for a deeper experience. And what I've noticed over the last, I don't know, eight or nine years now of teaching, is that the majority of the students I come across do not have a clear understanding of the distinction between the two practices. And when they find and gain an understanding of the distinction and the tools that are implicit in insight meditation, so much opens up for them because this is exactly what happened in my experience as a meditator. So I just wanted to, that's the theme for our month, that's gonna be the theme for the retreat, um, which again, I'll talk about in a little bit, is just this distinction between mindfulness and insight. And most of this stuff I've mentioned in different ways in different Dharma talks, um, but you know how it is, we have to hear this stuff over and over again. I had some more insights just thinking about it uh, today. So let's continue with that uh, conversation about mindfulness and insight. And let's just take another layer of the onion, so to speak, as we go down deeper. I wanted to remind us that mindfulness, one of the major differences between mindfulness practice in and of itself and insight meditation, which includes mindfulness, is that mindfulness practice, as it's usually taught, really emphasizes letting go. It emphasizes being in the present moment, uh, not reacting, not judging, and not changing anything. Just being with what is so from moment to moment. And that is certainly one of the heart-mind qualities that the Buddha taught. But mindfulness meditation really just focuses on that one quality, the ability to be non-reactive and accepting of what is arising with each breath, whether it's the breath itself, the arising and passing, or the sensations on the body or moods or or thoughts. But mainly, the focus is just being with it, opening up to and being, if you will, equanimous 
is that factor. Equanimity is the factor of letting go into the present and accepting what is there with a non-reactive, non-judgmental attitude or mind. So mindfulness meditation really focuses on equanimity, non-reactivity to the changing flow of phenomenon in the heart and mind. Vipassana, on the other hand, insight meditation, encourages us to do both acts of equanimity, encouraging the cultivation of letting go and being present, but it also equally encourages engagement with the present moment, actively experimenting, exploring, and even changing what is happening to gain insight. So in insight meditation, we balance equanimity, the letting go factor, with investigation, which is the active exploratory factor of the Dharma. And that's a main difference. There are others, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. But today I just wanted to focus on that difference, because if you can get that difference, a whole new world can open up. And on the retreat, we'll go through practices around this, by the way. But today I just want to get the theory down for you. Let me just first start, there's a bunch of different ways I've talked about this in the past, so I'm going to try it in a unique way today. I'm going to start by just talking about the challenges of mindfulness practice when we just emphasize or focus on equanimity. When we just accept whatever's arising, whether it's pleasure or pain, right? So in equanimity, whether it's pleasurable sensations that arise, whether it's painful or contracted sensations, we respond the same. We're just equanimous. We bring a calm, clear, equanimous of mind to the experience. Now, the challenge with just witnessing something is that we don't necessarily see its cause. And this is a really big distinction. Just because we're noticing that something has arisen in the heart doesn't necessarily mean we've understood why it's there, where it came from, or what triggered it. It could be that that, that insight happens, but it's not necessarily the case. And oftentimes it is not the case. And so the example would be something like this. Like I was thinking about this today because when I was working on the talk, uh, the Amazon, uh, Amazon person knocked on my door to deliver a package. And what I imagined was there's a knock at the door and there's the Amazon person. And I open up the door and I accept the fact that someone has knocked at the door. And then there's a package. And I just, I'm a quantumist to that. That just happened. And I bring the package inside. And then the next day it happens again, knock on the door, delivery person, package. And at each time I just accept the reality of that situation. But if I don't bother to ask myself whether I ordered the package, why is this person dropping off a package? What is the cause of the person being at the door? Accepting it is not necessarily the same thing as understanding why it's there. It could be, I might be able to figure it out, but it would take some investigation. And that's really something to take home here uh, tonight, is just this fact that being present doesn't necessarily lead to particular insights. It might, but it doesn't always. And that's a big difference between mindfulness practice and insight meditation. Another challenge with just being present and not investigating is that we can't really see clearly the role we play in what's arising and passing away. It is very challenging just with equanimity to see that what is in fact arising is in part caused by our reactivity. Moment to moment, everything that's arising in the heart and mind is in part a result of our choices from the past, our intentions from the past, 
and the habit patterns of who we are as a person. And if I accept what arises, that's fine. But if I go deeper and I investigate, I might be able to see, huh, what role do I play in this anxiety that's arisen, this anger that's arisen, this depression that's arisen? If I just accept it, I may not know where it came from, but most importantly, what role my heart and mind plays in that thing arising in consciousness. Now, oftentimes what I hear teachers who just focus on mindfulness say is, you can't control what's arising and passing away. What's happening in the world is just happening in the world. It's just what it is. So if we just accept what it is and go with the flow, there will be some type of awakening. The challenge with that is that, well, first of all, it's not completely true that what's happening is completely out of our control or just happening. As I said, we may not be able to control everything that's happening, but we certainly exert influence. And when mindfulness is tempered with curiosity investigation, this other factor, we begin to see how we influence, how we do in a lot of ways control the outcome of circumstances, particularly how we feel, particularly how we feel. So this idea that we just go with the flow because it's out of our control is not wholly true. In a lot of cases, yes, that is the case and that, that's rightfully so. But then there's a lot of cases where if we add something more than just present moment awareness, we can gain insight into how the conditions of the present moment actually come to be, what role we play, why the circumstances are actually arising and passing away. And that's why it's called insight meditation. We're learning the cause of the conditions that arise in the present moment. And when we do that, it leads to great doorways of ability to influence the outcome of how we feel moment to moment. And I'll explain this a little more as we go. In my own experience and hundreds of students that I met with every year, is that you can bring equanimity, just bare presence to a strong emotion year after year, sit after sit, and it never changes. Depression, anxiety, trauma, whatever it might be, or it could just be wandering mind. <laughs> I mean, whatever the case may be, you can bring awareness to something, but the fact that you accept it doesn't necessarily mean you're transcending it or decreasing your suffering. Now, sometimes it means that. Sometimes what's really causing the suffering is that we're clinging and we're not accepting something that's happening. So when we bring equanimity, there's this great sense of ease and freedom. So I don't wanna say that it's not doing stuff because that's not what I mean. It's just, it doesn't always work. Equanimity doesn't always work to decrease suffering, which is why in traditional insight meditation, it's always partnered with another factor, which is investigation. Here's what happens in my experience and from when I talk to students, when we just bring the one factor to the present moment, this mindful equanimity, here's what happens. We accept suffering as it arises because that's what we're being asked to do. We accept that, okay, look, there's suffering, there's knee pain, there's emotional pain. We don't try to do anything about it, which is fine. We don't try to get over it or transcend it. We just let it be there. And then we're sort of stuck because there aren't any other tools to decrease the intensity or the quantity or the frequency of whatever that aversion or pain is. Because in that acceptance, we end up sort of at a dead end in our ability to act because we're invited to not react at all. 
So it, it starts off as this sort of opening to the present moment, which feel good, feels good, but then we find ourselves sort of stuck. Well, what do I do next? Now that I can see that I'm in so much pain, you know, once I can hold it and really be with it, what is the next step? And if you're just practicing mindfulness meditation, oftentimes you never learn any next steps. It's just you continue to let go and be present and let go and be present. Now, what happens with that, because there is no other step of engagement, ultimately, the only thing you can actually do is accept that there's suffering in your life and go find opportunities to bring mindfulness to the sensual pleasures of your life and try and enhance them. To take mindfulness and just begin to apply it to all the different things in your life. Because you're not gonna do anything about the suffering, you're gonna accept that it's there. And then with pleasure, what we're often invited to do as mindfulness practitioners is just bring mindfulness to all the sensual experiences in our life. That's where we end up with books like Mindfulness, the mindful gardener, the mindful cook, the mindful lawnmower, whatever the case may be. The only thing we can really do if we're just being mindful is apply mindfulness and presence to everything that happens and try and accept it. Now, there, like I said, there's a definite pleasure in that. There's a definite ease that happens. It's definitely psychologically healing and a lot of well-being can arise from just being mindful. It's just limited. It just has an endpoint. And what's interesting about this is as students take on this view that reacting or changing or engaging the present moment is sort of off limits and all we're invited to do is just be present, it sort of has this slippery slope into to what we call spiritual materialism, which means we start to just engage life with this attitude that I'm going to use mindfulness to more thoroughly enjoy sensual pleasures. I'm going to do mindful bike riding. I'm going to do mindful yoga. I'm going to do everything I do that I'm experiencing. I'm going to go dancing. I'm going to be mindful when I'm dancing. I just, I just read like two days ago classes on like, this is to totally what it was. It's like classes on like mindful, like smoking pot mindfully, right? How to combine like getting stoned with mindfulness which is fine. I'm not saying I haven't done that before. I'm just saying that what we start end up doing, if all we can do is be mindful, we start bringing mindfulness to sensual experiences. The other one I saw, I, I kid you not, is mindful pornography. So there's a new movement to where you're mindful pornography. So it, you can see where I'm going with this. There's a certain point, if mindfulness is all we have, what we end up doing is reifying the pleasures of the world and saying, wow, if I could just be mindful of all these sensual experiences and just acknowledge that suffering's there, then that's probably the best that we, that's kind of the best that we have. And that's really not what the Buddha had intended. The Buddha had intended for us to get past suffering, to really understand how pleasure is actually created in the heart and mind so we can have pleasures beyond the sensual. So again, if we're just using mindfulness, it is hard to see the role we play in the experience that's arising. It also limits the amount of engagement we can do and it limits the amount of tools that we have to be able to explore. So at the end of the day, all we have is kind of this mindful soup that just keeps boiling. We're just gonna keep being mindful, keep being mindful, keep being mindful. So there's a limit to this way of meditating.
And again, I'm not saying in and of itself, it is not well worth doing. I'm just saying it's just the beginning of the practice. It is not the end of the practice. So please hear that as well, because it's not like it's not healthy or helpful or I'm not discouraging people from, from doing that in and of itself. It's just that's not all there is to the insight meditation practice. Another thing that happens, and I mentioned this last week, this has to do with mystical experiences, mystical experiences. Again, when we bring mindfulness to the present moment without investigation, when we're just committed to witnessing, when we're just committed to being awake and aware to what is arising, it is difficult to see behind the process to see what's causing it. That's the karma, right? What is conditioning the actual experience in my moment to moment meditation or in life itself for that matter? If we're just mindful, it's hard to see behind the experience. Because of that, when we have real pleasurable experiences or experiences of oneness or experiences of interconnectivity or really subtle experiences where the mind is totally expansive and serene, because we don't see what's causing those experiences, we often tend to think that is the end goal that the end goal is just an experience of unified consciousness, that there is an experience of love and connectedness. And again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those experiences. They are part of the Dharma, part and parcel, in fact. It's just they're not the end goal. And if we only have mindfulness, when those experiences arise, we've been taught to just accept them. And they're so subtle and so pleasurable, and they can be really pleasurable, I know a lot of you have had ecstatic experiences in meditation, experiences in the jhanas, or perhaps even the upper jhanas of non-materiality, things like that. That stuff is way fun. It is so pleasurable. And if you don't have the ability to see what is conditioning those phenomenon, we often mistake that for an end goal, and we just get attached to it. We create identities around it. I am one, I am everything, I am love, I am this, I am that. We start to identify with the spiritual experiences themselves and we just create new identities. If you remember, the Buddha talked about enlightenment in terms of disidentifying with everything, including the meditative experiences ultimately. So what I've noticed, Goenka talks about actually on one of his retreats, he talks about how as students mature in practice, there's a point where the experience in meditation is so subtle and so calm and so serene that the mind gets tricked in thinking that it's illuminate, that it's actually enlightenment because it can't see how the process is being created. It's so subtle. And Goenka says at that point, you have to use investigation. You have to be really discerning and ask yourself, what is the condition behind this incredible pleasure? What is the condition that's bringing this oneness into being? And at that point, there's a new insight that lies behind some of these mystical experiences. And in a few weeks, I'll take a deeper dive into mysticism so I can explain it more clearly. But for now, I just want to just to clarify that mindfulness without the ability to investigate tends to create real incredible pleasure, a lot of bliss, a lot of calm, but at the same time, we get limited in our understanding of what's causing those experiences. So the insight doesn't get as deep at that point. 
So let me do the flip side of this to kind of balance out uh, the other side. So let's talk about Vipassana and how Vipassana encourages both mindfulness and, sorry, not both, yes, mindfulness, of course, uh, both equanimity, which is the non-reactive, accepting, letting go, uh, non-judgmental quality of the heart, and investigation, which is often known as curiosity or discernment, the ability to see causality in the heart and mind moment to moment. So let me just give you a few examples of, of how this works in Vipassana practice. In Vipassana, we use equanimity just like we do in mindfulness. When things arise, we begin to take in what's there, pleasant, unpleasant, expansion, contraction. We take in the good and the bad and the aversive, the expansions and the love and the equity, everything. We take it all in. Just like when I'm leading meditation, I always start you know, with that sense of equanimity. Bring everything in. We want to bring everything in. That is certainly an absolute necessity in practice. So we bring positive and negative sensations into awareness and we accept. That's the first thing we do, just like in mindfulness. And then we honor the fact of that experience. We just be with it. We're like, wow, that's my knee. It's vibrating. I feel heat. Here's my being sitting, breathing. I can feel gravity. I can feel the temperature of the room. I can feel some apprehension or insecurity. We just let, we make room for everything, right? And we do this to honor the fact of the present moment experience. Now, here's where we start moving into Vipassana and away from mindfulness itself. We don't just accept it for it to be what it is. We also accept it for a subtler reason. We want to accept negative or negative is not really the right word, aversive sensations, because that could be anything, anything we're averse to. We want to lean in and accept and bring equanimity to aversive experiences because our natural tendency is to push them away. And if we don't ever accept them, we can never know them. We can never un really understand what they are. When depression arises, when anxiety arises, no one in their right mind wants to get more intimate with those sensations. The first thing we do is distract ourselves. We push ourselves away and we're like, I would rather not be anxious right now. I'd rather not be, have a memory of something bad. It, we, we push it away and that's a total natural experience. So that is why we start with the equanimity. Because if we don't start with equanimity, we're not truly going to lean into that which is aversive to us. We just pull our hand away from the stove. We're not going to keep our hand in the fire of a strong emotion or a strong uh, relationship difficulty. We're always going to try and at least at first deny it in some way, push it away in some way. So here's where we start moving away with total acceptance. We're not just accepting it because it's there. We're accepting it with the awareness that we don't want to accept it that it's something that's not feeling so hot. And so there's a little bit of a difference here. Now, the same goes for pleasure. Part of the reason we need to bring equanimity to pleasure is not so it becomes more pleasurable, right? That's mindfulness practice. In Vipassana, we're bringing mindfulness to pleasure to understand how pleasure is created, to understand its nature. Normally, when we feel pleasure, we don't think to ourselves, let me bring awareness to this and deconstruct its parts. What we do is we're like, this is fun. I'm just going to keep enjoying myself. We don't explore it or take it apart into pieces or come to understand it. We just want more. 
We just grasp and we cling and we crave. So in Vipassana, we're bringing aversive sensations into the present moment and we're accepting them instead of pushing them away. And with pleasurable sensations, we're bringing them in and accepting them, not just because they're pleasurable, because we wanna hold them long enough in awareness to begin to understand their nature. Again, remember insight meditation, understanding the nature of how things are. Not that they are, but how they are, how they come into being and how they affect us and impact us. That's where it becomes the insight. So it's, I know it's a subtle difference, but in practice, you will notice the change. Now, unlike plain mindfulness, we then go further because we want to understand the conditional cause of what we're experiencing. The wise view of the Buddha says, moment to moment, life is arising and passing away based on causal conditions, not randomly, but based on choices and intentions of all beings, historically, personally, locally, transpersonally. It's a causal cause and effect relationship. And what we're doing here is getting deep into this causality to find the intersectionality between the suffering and the role we're playing in the suffering. The intersectionality between pleasure and the way we're constructing that pleasure. By doing this type of equanimity and combining with it, combining with it investigation, we suddenly participate in our meditation practice in a completely different way. Instead of just being present, we do things like change our breath and notice the connection between breath and mood. We add sensations. We do what the Buddha calls fabrication. We create sensations. We learn to move energy around in the body to learn how pleasure is created. We let go of certain actions consciously to decrease suffering, to watch how letting go of particular thoughts letting go of particular breathing patterns, letting go of particular postures or actions actually can liberate us. So what we're really doing is following in the Buddha's footsteps. His, his insight was that we play a role in our suffering. And if we just practice mindfulness, noticing when suffering arises, we're not taking the second step of Vipassana practice, which is the engagement of the present moment, changing how we feel, changing how we think. So at that point, Vipassana becomes very active. We're actively engaging with that which is being held in equanimity. So equanimity holds the door of the present moment open. And then this other heart-mind quality of investigation then explores what's actually arising and passing away. So I know that may sound a little abstract, but that's the basics. That's the basics of the difference between a practice that just focuses on presence and insight meditation, which combines presence or equanimous presence with an attitude of curiosity and investigation. On the mindfulness side, what I've noticed is that many teachers will inadvertently probably instill a little bit of fear in students. And again, this is inadvertent, it's not intentional, but what teachers will do is say, don't change anything. Don't change anything. If you change anything in the present moment, then it's not the real present moment, right? So you don't want to add or subtract or do anything intentionally. You just want to let go. 
Now, the, pro the problem with that idea is that non-reactivity changes the present moment. So not reacting is a way of reacting to the present moment. So if I engage you, that changes reality. If I don't engage you and I just accept you, that also changes reality. So everything we do in meditation changes the experience because we're in the world. You can't engage, you can't disengage from being a human being. Equanimity is a way of changing your experience by non-reactivity. So there's a paradox to equanimity that's often misunderstood. So if, if you could take anything home from this evening, don't be afraid of engaging in your practice because equanimity also changes your practice. Mindfulness, being mindful changes you. It changes your partners, your friends, your family. It changes your mind and your heart. Everything we're doing in meditation is changing us moment to moment. We're not letting go of the steering wheel because there's no way to let go of that engagement. Well, <laughs> I'm going to put a pin in that one because enlightenment. Okay, so I'm not going to say you can't completely let go of engagement. Scratch that. That's not correct. But generally speaking, in meditation, moment to moment, you are changing the experience with the meditation practice. And that's one of the big take homes, uh, if you will, from what I'm talking about here today. One other thing I wanted to mention about equanimity. Again, please hear this. There's nothing wrong with mindfulness or mindful equanimity in and of itself. It is a heart-mind quality. It's just one of many heart-mind qualities that the Buddha invited us to engage in. What I'm encouraging you to do is think of your meditation practice as much broader, much deeper, and much more dynamic. And if you engage the more dynamic qualities, combining heart-mind factors, you will find that your meditation becomes differently transforming in a very distinct way. Here's the challenge with equanimity, and this is where spiritual bypass comes in. Okay, I think this will make sense. So let us take this idea of non-reactivity. If I walk through my days not reacting, it's pretty obvious that not reacting might make me feel pretty good. If I'm not reacting so much, if I'm just kind of accepting what's happening moment to moment, there's going to be a buoyancy to my step. There's going to be a sense of balance in my life oftentimes. If I just don't take things too seriously, don't try and over-engage. Now that's the positive side of equanimity. It gives a buoyancy to our step. It allows us to not overcompensate or undercompensate. Another way of looking at equanimity is a balanced reaction, even more so than non-reaction. But that being said, there's a shadow side to this. Because the fact of the matter is, suffering is suffering, harm is harm, and harm is not happiness, right? And joy is not sadness. So if I just go through my days accepting everything as being equal, that leads to a particular problem. We have to be careful because if we act as if everything coming into the field of consciousness is equal, it becomes a type of sort of zoning out, a relativism, a type of numbness, where we say to ourselves, oh, look, there's some pain arising. No big deal. Oh, look, there's pleasure arising. Oh, no big deal. Well, it is a big deal if that pain or that harm is like something at the level of systemic injustice or you're harming somebody. It's not all equal. The challenge with having a mindfulness practice that accepts everything is equal is we forget that in the Dharma, there is an ethical component to our practice. 
we are being asked to investigate whether there's suffering and harm being caused moment to moment. It's not just acceptance. We, we need to look for the suffering so we can then eliminate it, right? Transcend it, get beyond it. So what I find oftentimes when this spiritual bypass occurs, and it can happen at any stage of meditation practice, is that people will disengage from reality, not take responsibility for their actions and say things like, well, I'm just going with the flow. I'm just accepting what is, this is just what is. You know, I'm harming you, that's just what is. That's your problem, you deal with it. There's a lot of like numbing out that can happen if we take equanimity in this literal sense that we just accept everything. There's always discernment that the Buddha is encouraging us to do. It's not relativity. We're looking for suffering. We're looking for joy, compassion, peace, serenity, tranquility. And these qualities of heart and mind are not equal in the effect they have on ourselves and other beings. So remember that we're not Dharma doormats, right? We're not just allowing things to rise and pass away. We're allowing things to arise and pass away to comprehend them so we can free ourselves from suffering. That's really the take home. We're allowing them to arise for a reason, not just to accept them in and of themselves. So that's my take home for this part of it. This is kind of my overview of this. And I know I've talked about this in different ways in different Dharma talks. I know it's not completely new, but I really feel like it's important to keep coming back to these concepts because it's very easy to forget uh, the differences between these heart-mind qualities. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website www.wednesdaywakeup.com and click on donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.